Luke 3, starting at verse 15. Here we go. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming to strap, is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then we jump to verse 21, which says, Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but we are using something called the Revised Common Lectionary, which is another aspect of of a more traditional form of worship. It is a schedule of readings that was created, oh, centuries ago in in some respects and continues to be revised. And the uh, lectionary is a method that the church fathers developed to familiarize us all with scripture through worship and to not leave anything out. See, uh, if you go to some churches, for example, the pastors, if they wish, could cherry pick the sermon topics and just stick with the stuff they're comfortable preaching. But if you read the revised common lectionary, you got to take whatever you get. And that's good for you as the worshipers. It's good for us as worship leaders. The Revised Common Lectionary schedule of readings prescribes something that would take over a three-year period of time, almost all of Scripture, and present it to you on Sunday mornings. That's the idea. So there's a whole list of readings, and uh, my intention is to present you with all of those in the bulletin in time. But for now, if you're wondering how we choose the topic, this is it. And so here we are on this occasion, the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ, considering once again, all this time has has just raced past. We've just gone 33 years into the future from Christmas, and here we are, Jesus as a young man, uh, maybe 30 years, who knows, going to John the Baptist, to the one who said, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes, and he goes there to be baptized and to set before us what we would call one of the two sacred things, the sacraments, the sacrament of baptism, because Jesus said it should be so. And so Jesus being baptized receives this blessing from heaven saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Now, having said that, I'd like to refer you to last week's reading, which said to us in part, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of a man, but of God. So I want to propose a question to you. If that is true, if that is what Jesus has done for us, And if God said of his own son, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, then it is entirely plausible that God might look at you and say the same thing. Think about it. 
God might look at you when you growl at yourself in the morning as you look in the mirror and see something that's a little frightening because it hasn't quite awakened yet and maybe doesn't have enough makeup or deodorant on, right? And, and suddenly you have to hear the voice of God saying, this is my child with whom I am well pleased. You believe it? Are you a little shocked by that idea? I will argue today that the church has failed miserably over the years in conveying to people adequately this fundamental truth, that to all who accepted his gift, they were given the right to be children of God, the very sons and daughters of God. And that the church, in its effort to maintain human religion and authority over others, has deliberately suppressed this information, this concept. Sounds a little cruel, sounds like I'm being a little harsh, but the church, historically speaking, has always thought better of itself than the one that it was organized to worship. <laughs> now that doesn't always start out that way, it just ends up that way. The, then the church, by that I mean the religious authorities that we uh, gradually give positions over uh, our religious activity and, and therefore what we start out doing in the form of a movement, following the apostles, following a uh, a wonderful evangelist, following someone like John Wesley or Martin Luther or or uh, uh, one of the, the founders of various other movements that have become now denominations, they never intended that it would turn into an institution and a power structure where the truth of who you are in Christ would be suppressed in order that the institution might leverage your guilt and shame. Have I shocked you? I did warn you, by the way, on the last Sunday of the year that this was going to be the year for shocking revelations. So here you go. You are a son or daughter of God with whom he is well pleased, and you have been taught to think that God is not pleased with you. You have been taught that God isn't pleased with you. You've been taught that the religious activities you go through and the way that you interpret your thoughts that disturb you or your actions that you're regretful about, those sort of things, you've been taught that those are all signs that God is not pleased with you. But you miss the fundamental nature of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It isn't that he's pleased with you because of your thoughts and your deeds. It is that he is pleased with you because you accepted Christ as the one who purchased your redemption. In other words, he's not as pleased with you because of what you think and do as he is because of who you put your faith in, his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he looks at you, he sees you standing behind Jesus in Jesus' shadow. He sees his son with whom he is well pleased and he sees you standing in line behind his son as the sons and daughters that Jesus has brought with him. We have a picture in Revelation of Jesus returning to the earth with this train of saints behind him to recapture and repopulate the world. And in a sense, what we need to see is ourselves marching toward the Lord and his mighty throne in the same way. Now, you walk behind your Lord Jesus and he's the son of God bringing sons and daughters of God to the throne of grace with him. The train of his robe 
is dragging us along. Take a second to absorb that. I'll wait. Don't hear that I have condemned Christian religion as much as I am trying to drive home the point that in religion we can benefit from people's guilt and shame and sooner or later the flesh will take over and leverage that. When I was teaching the church history classes last spring and early in the fall, I came to a place that is well known to Lutherans as the day when Martin Luther protested with his 95 theses. And one of the things he had against the church, the institution of the church, was indulgences. Now you could pay your way into heaven. You could even pay your way, uh, pay forward those who had not quite made it yet, but had died. You could pay them out of purgatory. See, that's a natural human response to guilt and shame, to try to find some earthly form of relief. But the truth is, is you've already been forgiven. You've already been released from a shame that you should have felt. And this is why we talk about the significance of repentance. If you're going to enter into a relationship with God like the son or daughter that's referred to in the passages, it begins with repentance. It begins with an admission that in and of yourself and your uh, desire to live a godly and holy life, you will fall short because you simply don't have it within you to get it right 100% of the time. But because of our Redeemer, Lord Jesus Christ, you are 100% pure. Now, this leads to the next thing that I want to share with you. You are, in God's eyes, a son or daughter, but you, having been, you know, after repenting, I should say, and after accepting Christ as your Redeemer, you are, in God's eyes, a son or daughter. But at the same time, you may be pure in one sense, but you are imperfect in another. And so it's important to recognize this, this, this very vital theological fact. You are pure in the eyes of God because of Jesus Christ, but you are imperfect. So the founder of our tradition, John Wesley, would say that you are striving for perfection throughout your life. And in death, you will pursue perfection, even as you move closer to the throne of God's grace in the train of Jesus's robe. So what then are we supposed to do? Well, the apostle Paul says, this, says of it, in uh, Romans 5:18 to 6:4, I, I would like to turn to that. Romans 5, verses 18 to uh, chapter 6:4. That's on 11:20 in your Bible, pew Bible. Okay, here we go. Romans 5, starting at verse 18. Let's let's just see what it says here. The Apostle Paul was the perfect apologist for what I'm sharing. Paul says, therefore, as one trespass, as one, uh, trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one's, uh, one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to... Uh, 
increase the, I'm sorry, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we do who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul is saying, You've been made perfect because you died to sin. You repented of your sin. You died to the sins of the flesh. And then you were raised up, born again in the Holy Spirit. And therefore, your sin is no longer power. It has no power over you. You have the choice to resist sin. And that leads us to the problem that I think afflicts very many Christians. And so... First, remember that you are a son or daughter of God with whom he is well pleased. The second thing you need to remember is that you have died to sin and it has no power over you anymore. Which means that you have everything you need to pursue a life without sin. But the problem for many of us then is we've been misled about what sin is. Again, I will blame the church. And by that, I mean religious authorities who have been overly human in their approach to the things of Christ. Many an evangelist, many a great speaker has made a lot of progress by reminding people of sin. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That was a very famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s. It was actually a grace-filled sermon, but he definitely got people's attention with that title. That's why we still remember it today. But in fact, we are prone to listening to sermons and to uh, and energetic leaders in tent meetings and in church services telling us that it is our immoral behavior that constitutes sin. And this is not entirely untrue but it misses an incredibly important point. You see, immoral behavior is one of those expressions of a, lack of, dis, of a lack of respect for God. In other words, if you really want to understand the nature of sin, you have to go all the way back to when sin entered into the human condition, and you have to understand who is the one who taught us to sin. And the nature of that one's sin, the enemy of God, Satan, was that he thought better of himself than God. He thought that he could do the God thing better than the God who created him. And this was his, and still is, his fundamental flaw. He taught Adam and Eve to think that way about themselves. He taught them to look at God's command, God's precepts, and say to themselves, well, what if God's not telling us the truth? What if God's got some agenda that isn't to our advantage, that isn't in our benefit? And so the very, the very beginning of sin started with doubt about who God is and the goodness of God's nature. 
And so if we're going to understand living a life where sin has no more power over us, we have to start with the fundamentals. Yes, you have immoral behavior in your life. But immoral behavior is very subjective, especially these days, isn't it? It just depends on who you ask, whether it's immoral or not. And some of us church people, especially lifelong religious worshipers and attendees, we, we have got some real strong opinions about certain moral topics. And we act immoral in our own way in rebellion against those things that we consider immoral. So it gets very fuzzy, doesn't it? So what are we supposed to do as your spiritual leader and spiritual practitioner? Here's my prescription. Start with the fundamentals. How do you feel about God and yourself? Who has absolute authority over your being? Who is the definition of morality? Do you trust God in all things? Do you trust God and believe in God's good intentions? Or do you think of God as this sort of angry clockmaker who set it all into motion and just sits back and cackles with joy when it gets difficult for you? There's an awful lot of Christians who think that way. There are many people who would call themselves Christians, but they have a very unhealthy understanding of who God is. Remember this, God said of his son, this is my child with whom I am well pleased. And later, the Apostle John told us that that was exactly how God began to view us because of the work of the Son in our redemption. Do you believe it? There's the fundamental understanding of how much power sin has in your life. Do you believe it? Do you believe when you look in the mirror in the morning before your first cup of coffee, this is my child with whom I am well pleased. Do you believe when you've had a moral failure, no matter how big or how small, this is my child with whom I am well pleased. Do you believe it? If you can believe it, even in the most difficult of times, then you are beginning to really grasp the power that God has given you over sin. If you believe when you see another person in the church family, you know, if God has made me a son with whom he is well pleased, then he's also made you a daughter or son with whom he is well pleased. And yet, guess what that makes us? Brothers and sisters. God is particularly outspoken in the Bible about how his family treat each other. God speaks most of the time in Scripture not about the sins of the people who aren't part of the family, but about the sins in the people of the family against each other. This is why God created cities of refuge in the Old Testament, and this is why God has created the Christian community in the New Testament, that we would be a family and that we would show grace and mercy and love to one another because we are all children of God with whom he is well pleased. And therefore, how is your power over sin affecting the way you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ. When you think about people 
with whom you have worshipped in this church family and the things that have gone between you that perhaps separated you. Did you have power over sin? You have power over your sin if you looked at that person and saw a child of God with whom he is well pleased. What's more, if you see brothers and sisters in Christ who have, reclaimed, who have claimed the same redemption that you claim, who perhaps worship across town in a different way, and you see them without this harsh judgment, but with the grace of God in your heart, then you are living in the power over sin that was given to you when you were born again in the Holy Spirit. Rest assured, this does not mean that we have absolute uh, freedom to do whatever we want. Paul said right there in the passage I read, don't think that because of grace you should sin more in order that grace might increase. We as family members have an obligation to correct and direct within the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we have to hold each other accountable, but with love, with grace. And so this is why small group gatherings are such an important part of being in the church family, to be part of the body of Christ. You have to have a small group of people that you have a certain confidence with that you can hold each other accountable. So that when you hear someone, not so much acting immoral, but not acting like a brother or sister of the one about whom they're speaking. And you say to them, that's not very kind. Would the Spirit encourage such talk about your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or if that talk leads to something that the Apostle Paul would say requires that two or more of you go in confidence and love and grace to talk with that person about in order to help them to be accountable for a greater good. You see, that's love. And so I want to close uh, with two things that I'd like to leave you with. Number one, the uh, founder of the tradition that we worship in, John Wesley, said that, that what he believed you could achieve in life and if not in life, then after death, because life just continues, his body fails, but the spirit carries on. What he said was that we would achieve a certain perfect love. In other words, our flesh would always have its immoral failures at times. It would have its times when the flesh was weak, but the spirit was willing. But he believed that at some point, in our spiritual existence, we would develop a perfect love. In other words, a love like that of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that this is the ultimate victory. And it was something that you could not have hoped to attain without the redemption of Christ. So with that being said, the final comment is this. The Bible speaks more to our relationship with each other in the family of God than anything else, but we do have an obligation to those who are not part of the family yet. But our obligation is confusing for us, especially when all of the things we just talked about, our guilt and our shame, our anxiety and angst and fear about moral things, makes it very difficult for us to know how to deal with those who are outside the family of faith. But if we will, be more attentive to our spiritual well-being, to our perfect love, and our journey towards power over sin, 
then we might be far better representatives to a world who rejects church but would like to know who Jesus is. Our religion hasn't served well much of the time that it's been around. It hasn't done much to help people see Christ for who he is, the one who makes you sons and daughters of God with whom he is well pleased. Would you think that a non-Christian, a non-believer would be somewhat receptive to the news that you could be pleasing in God's sight, that you could look in the mirror and see all the ugliness and shame and sin, and yet know that this is a son or daughter of God with whom God is well pleased. Do you think a non-believer would be open to that message? I think so. And this is what we need to be. We don't have to agree with their lifestyles or their choices or the immoral things that they do, but if we condemn them and judge them and cruelly abuse them for not being like us, then how are we any different? How are we acting like sons and daughters of God if, on the other hand, we are people of grace and mercy in the spirit that was given to us that we might be changed in our nature? What then would they see? Would they see people being disciples, seeking disciples and hoping that it will bring change to the world around them? I hope so. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts that we might be transformed forever. Amen. Amen.